0: Today's sermon text is Romans 6, verses 1 through 14. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. since you are not under law, but under grace, this is God's word.
1: Amen. I say this occasionally, that was the best part of the service right there, God's word. I'm going to take a couple of minutes and talk about God's word, but um, that was the best part of the service, so Tundria, thank you. Uh, thank you, worship team. You guys led us so well today, so beautifully into God's presence. Um, welcome, everybody. Happy Easter. It is good to see you this morning. Um, The rain didn't come. It it might be out there now, but I'm really thankful that it didn't. Uh, I love seeing God's sun rays break through the clouds and just enjoyed that so much this morning. It was so nice walking out of the house with no coat on and to experience the warmth of God's love with you. And um, my name is Chris Bennett, and I have the privilege of leading Renewal Church. And uh, we used to be known as Christ the Rock. That's why Becky kept saying that. And uh, (laughs) we're Renewal Church. She's mortified right now. It's okay. No shame, it's all good, it's all good. Yeah, it's okay, it's all right. I love you, I love you. Me and you forever, it's all good. So, um, but I do have the privilege of leading a Renewal Church, and uh, it's so good to see you this morning. I want to go ahead and jump right into it today. Um, I had a friend tell me this last week, he's a pastor, he said these words, he said, I hate preaching holidays. He said, I have to preach in the same thing every year in a new way, and there is tons of, of pressure, tons of pressure. I could totally relate to that. I don't hate preaching on holidays, but, um, but I get why he said that. I get why he said that, and I really appreciated his candor. Uh, by Thursday, he was riding his mountain bike, and he said, Chris, I've got my text. I'm excited. I don't hate preaching on the holidays right now, so uh, thank, I'm thankful for that, but I get it. I feel the cynicism in a room like this. I feel it. I feel how incredulous. Some of us are. I know that some people are thinking Easter rocks at renewal. Next week will be, "Eh, okay. Two weeks later, "Eh." because you can't do that every week, right? You can't sustain that kind of energy and sense of critical mass every single week. Some churches try to do that, and I think with all due respect to them that they're making a mistake in trying to do that. Um, I don't want people in our church to be attached to hype. I really want people, pardon the piousness of this, to truly be attached to Jesus. Uh, hype does not navigate us through pain, suffering, trials, but re- being rooted firmly in the life of Jesus does. It does. Jesus gets us through routine He gets us through the mundane. He gets us through the highs. He gets us through the lows. We need to know what it tastes like and feels like and smells like to be with Jesus when our world is crashing down around us. So we refuse to try to make you do this on Sundays. Whoa. That's not our goal. That is not our goal. That's not our goal. If you do that, awesome. That's cool. That's not bad. That's not bad. But I feel the incredulousness. I know that many of us attending an Easter gathering like today aren't necessarily here. Maybe some of us are. But some of us aren't necessarily here because we have a felt need for God. Some of us are here because of tradition. It's what you do in Memphis on Easter. You go to church. And so preaching through this fog in some people's lives and minds, the doubt, The self sufficiency, the malaise can be daunting. And that's why a lot of preachers struggle preaching on Easter and Christmas. It's tough. It's daunting. It feels so much more authentic when it's a humdrum Sunday in the middle of June. In the middle of June. Part of what we want so bad, I think most of us want, preach and have this opportunity is that you would walk away with a new vision for living, a renewed heart for Jesus, that you would walk away with the conviction that he is without a doubt the most valuable commodity in the universe. He's not the way to wealth and riches. He is the wealth and riches that we need, that our souls are craving. And it's especially tough to believe this when we live in a city where probably 500,000 or more people are going to be in church today and claim an affection for Jesus, yet whose lives scream the opposite direction. It's tough to grab onto this. It's tough to lean into it and involve ourselves and give ourselves to the world of God. It's tough to do that. When so many people... Claim to know him, yet reject the premise that he really is the most valuable commodity in the universe. That he really is our portion, our inheritance. And so I come today needy. I need the Holy Spirit to help me teach. And you come needy, whether you know it or not. You need the Holy Spirit to help you listen. To help you hear. To help you hear through the cloud. Through the malaise, through the fog, through your interests, pushing all that aside and hear the pure word of God. So, shall we? Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? What do you think the answer to that question is? You're exactly right. If you said no, you got it right. You won the Easter Prize. Uh, just see me after church. I'll be the one with the anointing oil and all that. So, um, there's a misunderstanding that Paul's addressing here, and that misunderstanding is this: Is God on the hook to forgive me? Does he have to? And the thing is, is that if he does, and a lot of people think that he does, like if I say, "God, forgive me," he has to forgive me. Then when he does, I'm good. And I can go back to what I want to do. I can live the way I want. If God's forgiveness, as we preachers often say, will always outrun my sin and brokenness, then why stop sinning? Why? What's the point? What difference does it make at the end of the day? Why? We all want people in our lives to move into our lives. We want our friends, our colleagues, our coworkers. We want people to understand us. We want people to know our world. We expect our friends. We almost demand that our friends get to know us and push into our life in such a way that they understand how we feel at any given time. They know how we will react. We want them to know how we interpret our world. We want our friends and colleagues and our family members to get in our skin and look at the world through our eyes. We expect them to do this. But we are so poor at doing that with them. We are so poor at pushing into their lives and empathizing with them, learning how they think, knowing their story of brokenness and curating our relationship in such a way that I'm sensitive to the brokenness in their lives. I fail at this all the time. And I know you do too. We all do. We resent it though when people only use us for what they can leverage in our lives, how they can exploit some resource we can give them. And this is what Paul, I think, is addressing here. If God's on the hook to forgive me, why not just keep on living the way that I want to live because God's on the hook to forgive me? I'm getting what I want from God after all. And yet the most interesting, profound, beautiful person in the universe, we treat as though his world is meaningless. Let's exploit his power, what he can do for me. We don't push into him. So if we accept only God's forgiveness and reject God's call to adopt his ways then we are rejecting God. We are saying to Him, I'm not moving into your world, Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh, Jesus. I want you to move into mine and fix me, do something for me. And I just want to throw that out there this morning to sort of set the, the direction we want to go today. We don't want to be that kind of person. And I don't think many of us in this room, even though that may characterize where you are in God and what maybe your predominant attitudes are about God, I don't think anybody in here actually wants that. I think having a preacher put it to us that way causes us to go, yeah, that's me, but man, I don't want this. How do I get out of this? And that's what I want to talk about today. How to go from exploiting God, using God, to enjoying God, being with Him. Because it's all about His presence. Look at verse 2. By no means, Paul answers the question. So those of you who said no, you got it right. There's proof. Um, How can we who died to sin still live in it? And this question, this verse, has so many people for so many centuries and millennia scratching their heads. How do we die to sin? How do I do that? Does it mean that I stop sinning? Because if it means that I have to stop sinning, then man, this does not look good. Out of the gates, I am a failure. I don't know how to stop sinning. Anybody ever said that before? You ever said, I can't stop sinning? Anybody would admit that? I will. I can't stop sinning sometimes. Liars. <laughs> Sitting right now. Can't stop lying. Um, we're all failures at this. And so what does Paul do to help those of us who say, I can't stop sinning? I don't know how to stop sinning. What is, how does he address that? And I'm going to read through verses 3-3 through 11 again. I want you to bear with me for a moment because I want you to hear these words and then I'm going to say a few things about it. Do you not know that all of us who have been, and I want to, and I know some of you won't understand this. That's okay. Just listen. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. I really want to walk in newness of life. I don't want to just sing about having newness of life on Easter and in the back of my head, my conscience is going, yeah, but you don't have it. You're singing about it, but you ain't doing it. Growing up in the church, that's, every Easter was bad news to me. Because we would always sing about Christ's risen from the dead. I'm free from sin. And I'm like going, I'm glad my parents don't know what's going on in my life right now. Because I am not free from sin. I don't know how to be free from sin. I prayed the prayer every day. God, free me from sin. And nothing happened. How do you get free from sin? I don't know. I can't relate to some of these words in the Bible that I'm free from sin. And I was raised in church. I wasn't there three times a week. Home groups on Friday nights sometimes. Family devotional time. All that stuff. And I still couldn't get this in my head. Why do I not grasp this? Why is this not happening to me? Why? Verse 5, For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin... That the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Think of your body of work when you think of body of sin. Your body of sin might be brought to nothing. To nothing. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. I don't want to be a slave to sin. Do you? Anybody, or anybody Like, with me here? Please like, answer me on this part. This isn't just rhetorical. Life. Anybody not want to be a slave to sin? Anybody not want to keep doing things that you hate that you do? Yeah, me too. Right there with you, man. Okay, so uh, no peer pressure at all. Verse 7, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Couldn't relate to that. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. That's awesome. But how does that affect me? Death no longer has dominion over Jesus. For the death he died, he died to sin. Well, Jesus can do it. (laughs) He's God after all. I can't do that. I don't think. But the life he lives, he lives to God. I want to live to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So I guess I need to play mind tricks with myself. Even though I am sinning, I should say to myself, you're not sinning, Chris. You're not sinning, Chris. You're not sinning, Chris. You're not sinning, Chris. And maybe I'll wake up one day and not sin. Is that what that means? Let's talk about a couple of these items for a second. I could spend weeks preaching through those handful of verses, but I won't today. When he talks about being baptized into his death, what does he mean? What does he mean about united with him in his death? Being united with him in his death. What does it mean that the old self is crucified with him? And this is where we have to start thinking the way Paul was when he said these words. Paul has a slave in mind. A slave who doesn't have control over his destiny, but another person does. And a slave can't decide what he or she is going to do with their lives. They are owned, literally, by someone else. And this is how Paul characterizes sin's power in a believer's life, or in an unbeliever's life. Sin owns us. Sin is a master. Sin is a cruel master. It owns us. It has authority over us. We can't beat it. It has subdued us. It subdued us. In the previous chapter, in chapter 5, Paul talks about two different kinds of humans. Those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. Those people who are slaves to sin are those who are in Adam. And everyone is born in Adam. Everyone. 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 And so when a slave dies, though, and this is where the death part comes in, when a slave dies, obviously that master has no more power over him because he's dead. You can tell a dead body to do what you want it to do, but it's not going to do anything. Only Jesus can tell the dead what to do. And so Jesus... Those people who have deeply identified with Jesus, now they come under Jesus' authority and they have left and been freed from, liberated from, emancipated from the authority of sin. And this is why Paul uses the, the imagery of baptism. Because when you come to Christ and you are baptized, the picture in the minds of the earliest believers were the Jews or the Israelites who crossed the Red Sea miraculously when they were delivered from the bondage of Egypt. Our baptism is literally a freedom from sin. Now, getting baptized does not do that to you. Getting baptized is a worshipful response to the light that Jesus turned on in your heart. But it is our first order of business when we come to Jesus. We go down into a, what many preachers have said is a watery grave, identifying with the death of Jesus, and then we are raised like Jesus was 2,000 years ago. Identifying with the life of Jesus. This is big, my friends, because it can't just be something that we do when we pray the sinner's prayer. It's more than that. What should be happening in the mind of every single person who's water baptized after coming to faith is this. My past does not frame my future anymore jesus 's life does I am more a Jesus person than I am whatever I am, whatever gives you your your, your your deepest, most dense sense of identity. I am now more a Jesus person than I am something else. I read a and a friend on um, an acquaintance, I should say, uh, on Facebook about about a year ago, um, made a comment that I'll just go ahead and say was totally preposterous. It wasn't any of you, so don't worry. I'm not judging you. Uh, and I say, I'm not saying he is preposterous. I'm saying his a comment was. It was ridiculous. He got on Facebook and he said this: When the Bible, when Jesus says in the Bible to turn the other cheek when someone has um, slapped your face. What it doesn't mean is to forgive just anyone who abuses you. It means that when you are specifically preaching the gospel and you're persecuted for preaching the gospel, that's when you should forgive. And I'm reading this going, seriously? Like, forgiveness is only a virtue when you're preaching the gospel, but not when you're not explicitly preaching the gospel? About a year ago... I was with some friends in Raleigh, North Carolina, and we were in this place called a shoot house. First time I've ever done anything like that. I didn't grow up carrying guns and fishing and hunting and all that kind of stuff. I asked my grandpa one time, hey, why don't Bennett men do that? And he said, well... I camped out in Papua New Guinea for four years in World War II. So that's why Bennett men don't do that. And I was like, oh, that makes sense to me. And so um so I didn't grow up doing that kind of stuff. And um so we're in this shoot. I've never really shot like a, an automatic rifle before. And and this guy, what he does, what he he's retired now, but he trained special forces in close quarter combat. All the guys are like going, oh, now finally something interesting, you know. Um, he trained guy, he trained people in close quarter combat. And so what that meant was, was that they would storm a little house or, or rooms and they would go in and try to rescue somebody and shoot bad guys. And he would teach us how to go in as a team. So we had to make sure the person was always like on us. And, you know, we had to look like focus our, our gun on certain parts of the room we went in, like different sides of the room. And it was sort of overwhelming learning all this. And I remember he, and we had these machine guns, and they were real machine guns, but rather than real bullets, or I wouldn't have done this, um, they had these like these plastic cap type bullets with little thin metal bits in the front. Um, Make no mistake, they still hurt really, really, really bad. Um, I had purple welts all over me for a long time. My partner that I was with, my friend Trey, had many more purple welts because when we were attacked from several different sides, I grabbed his back and I went down behind him like this. <laughs> and he was screaming in pain as he's getting shot in the face and all over and, and all that. And so I still don't think he's forgiven me. Um, so, um, it's so uncharacteristic of me um, to throw a friend under the bus. But... Um, but this guy was who was directing us, he claims to follow Jesus, and he got in one of these little sort of preaching tirades because he perceived that we were all preachers. And he said, you know, and it's always the, the turn-the-other-cheek thing. He said, you know, when Jesus said turn-the-other-cheek, he didn't actually mean forgive people. And so like six of us who were all pastors immediately tweaked our attention. What did he mean? And he said, what he meant was is that when you're turning the other cheek, that was his way of saying, bring a roundhouse around and hit <laughs> the other person. And I'm thinking, I'm, we're like, you know, we're not sure it actually means that. He's like, no. And he was, he was absolutely adamant. That's exactly. And he was serious. It was sad. It was funny and it was sad. We were crying and we were laughing. It was interesting. So, we were, uh, so he said this. And I remember thinking to myself, man, that's, we, we do this so much. Whenever we come across text and scripture that step on our toes or disagree with us, what we don't do is baptize ourselves in Jesus. We baptize Jesus in us. I've heard it said that if you read the Bible and the Bible agrees with you more than it disagrees with you, maybe you're worshiping yourself and not God. What it means to be baptized into Jesus is to hook, line, and sinker, embrace Jesus's ways, Jesus's teachings. (coughs) Pardon me. You are admitting, you are admitting my ways are rubbish. And I must live by his way. This is the kind of thing that we're talking about here. Sin has no more claim on God's people. No more. Sin has no authority over us. But if your mind has been trained to function a certain way, even though someone doesn't have authority over you, you can still submit to them. This is what Paul's dealing with here. Check this out. So you got those who are in Adam are slaves of sin. Those who are in Christ are no longer located in sin. This is what he's talking about through the first 11 verses. There's this um, theologian named N.T. Wright that everybody quotes on Easter because his Easter stuff is so good. And I want to give you something that he said that I thought was just Beautiful. It's a little bit of a long quote and so we've got it in the screens, but I want you to listen to this and read this and think about it. It's so good. He said this. What is true of the Messiah ever since the glory of Easter day is that he is alive again with a death, with, with a life that death cannot touch. He hasn't come back into the same life. He has gone through. He has gone on through death and out the other side into a new bodily life beyond the reach of death. Paul's point is that if we are in the Messiah, then that is where we are too. We are in a life that cannot decay. We are in a life that is not under the authority or the power of sin. So let's walk it out. And that's what we're going to talk about in this last section. We're not sinners saved by grace. We are saints who sometimes sin. Big difference. The scriptures so often speak of being In Christ. Those words, in Christ, friends, aren't meaningless. They're not coincidental. They're not metaphorical. If you truly trust in Jesus as your Savior, then you have taken on who Jesus is. What is true of Jesus is true of you. No, you can't speak and create planets. You can't do that. But when the Bible says that Jesus is righteous, we are also righteous. Jesus' eternal life is our eternal life. Jesus not being under the authority of sin is also now true of us. We are not under the authority of sin. In the same way Jesus was resurrected 2,000 years ago, we will be resurrected after we die at some point in time in the future. What is true of Jesus is true of us. And so for those of you who don't follow him, or for those of you who say that you do, let's think about this together and open our hearts to God. There was a point in your past when God graciously shed light on your soul. He drew you to him. And you answered That phenomenon that Paul is speaking about is called being baptized in Christ. You are becoming one with Christ. Christ went from being, eh, to compelling. He went from being a drag to beautiful. He went from being a burden childish weight you were given by your parents, perhaps, to being the meaning of your life fundamentally. That's what happened to you. But here's the thing. Many of us say these words, I didn't feel anything. I don't feel anything. What do I do about that? I don't feel anything. And this is what he says, something profound in verse 11 that many of us often often just miss. And I did for so long. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Because most versions have either the word reckon or consider. Here's what we think it's saying. Trick yourself into believing you're holy. Take some impossible leap of faith and be a different kind of person. Do that. That's what we think it means, but that's not what it means. One one scholar said it this way. The best word to use there is this word, calculate. 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 When you calculate, you don't create a new reality. You're simply learning the truth about something. If you give me an equation that I don't know the answer, on, the answer of, I'm going to do the equation and then I will find the answer. There's only one answer. I can't make up my own answer. That's wrong. To calculate doesn't mean you play mind tricks with yourself. It doesn't mean you trick and psych yourself out into believing something that's really not true at the end of the day. To calculate means do the math, Paul says. Sum it up. And as you sum it up, you're going to discover something true. The answer, and the answer is this, is that you are no longer in your sin. You are in Jesus. And that changes everything. Everything. It's similar to something like this. Say there was a poor man, a beggar, had no home, lived on the streets, and that beggar did not know that he was the only living descendant of a relative who was wealthy. And that relative, in his will, said, I want all of my assets to go to this long-lost nephew of mine. And so he dies. And here's the problem. Because there's no way to communicate with this poor man. He doesn't have a cell phone. He doesn't have an address. There's no way to send him mail and alert him that you are now a multi-millionaire. He continues to live in his poverty thinking that he's broke when he doesn't know that he is wealthy. That's not mind games. That's truth. He doesn't need to psych himself out into believing I'm really wealthy when he's got nothing in the bank and doesn't even have a bank account. He has millions of dollars waiting for him, but he doesn't know it. I believe this is the sad reality of many, many, many Christians. We do not know what we are in Christ. And so we don't think we can obey the scriptures. There's no way I could pull that off. It feels like an impossible leap of faith because what we think of ourselves is broken, not a saint who is now located not in sin, but in grace in Christ. And it all comes down to this. What story are you telling yourself When you face temptation. What is the story that you tell yourself? At some point my friends. You are going to have to make a decision. To remove your faith. From the stories that have defined you. And ruined you. And rather put your faith. In the story of Jesus. That renews you. A story that says this about you. You are not in abuse anymore. You are not in bullying anymore. You are not in porn anymore. You are not in greed and materialism anymore. You are not in the insatiable appetite to build your career and your kingdom anymore. You're not there anymore. That's not who you are. You are not in having a bigger and better whatever anymore. That's not who you are. You are not in overeating anymore. You are not in lust anymore. Anymore. You are not into power mongering anymore. You are not into insecurity and rejection anymore. That's not who you are. I know you still behave that way because you think that's true of yourself, but that is not true of you. You are not in rejection anymore. So you don't have to overcome people anymore. You don't have to outdo them, one-up them, beat them, overcome them anymore. You don't, you don't have to mistreat people now because you are no longer in abuse. That's not who you are. None of that is true of you if you have been baptized in Jesus. You no longer have to live with that cruel companion anymore. That is not who you are. But here's the kicker. This takes renewing your habits, the way that you think of yourself and American Christians demand to go to church to hear a jaw-dropping sermon that will fix them so they don't have to do anything after that. And this is obliterating the Christian witness in the Western world. We are waiting for preachers to fix us. When it always comes down to the presence of God and being with Him. Doing life with Him. It has always been about the presence of God, my friends. This is why the last picture that we see in the New Testament before you shut the book is a new city that is emanating with the glory of the presence of God. It is being with Him. It is being in Him. And so this is, this is, what's required from you is this. Contemplation. Meditation. interaction with truth, being rooted in a community of believers. And this is not a crude attempt to get newcomers to join our church today. That is not what I'm going for. But you, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, you need to be rooted down somewhere. If this church isn't for you, I can literally recommend dozens to you. I was able to send an email out to 35 pastor friends in the city, letting them know what was going on, and almost every one of them replied with such deep thankfulness and encouragement. Man, go for it. You God is on, God's hand is on CTR, now renewal. Go for it, man. I can recommend churches all over the city, but be rooted down in a body of believers where your soul is going to be nourished. And that means... Learning to live with the routine and the mundane and the highs and the lows that come with doing community with believers. Because we are saints who sometimes sin. I will sin against you. You will sin against me. That's the way it works. And the more and more we're around each other and we're growing and allowing our faith to be flourished in Jesus, to flourish in Jesus, we will grow in a love for one another which is what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus, love. Love. So this requires thinking. This requires working this truth, the truth of your new identity into your soul. It's similar to scrubbing the grout between tiles. Anybody enjoy doing that as much as I do? This is similar to working in the wax into those tiny, almost microscopic cracks in the finish of your car. I am not saying you've got to work to be this. I'm saying you've got to work to realize this. You are already this. It was given to you by Jesus and his glorious, gracious gift. You are this if you say that you follow Jesus. But you can't wait for the preachers and for small group leaders and for TV evangelists and for some spontaneous spiritual phenomenon to fall out of the sky and fix you. It requires you thinking about this. And that's why Paul spends 16 chapters to the Romans saying, Hey, learn how to think this way about yourself. Consider yourself dead to sin. Reckon yourself dead to sin. Reckon yourself dead to sin. sin." calculate yourself dead to sin. This realization is money. My wife loves it when I use that expression. This realization is huge. It takes work to think it through, to work it into your life. But you are no longer rejection. You are no longer in security. You are no longer in pride. You are no longer in lust and sex addiction. You are no longer in fill in the blank what you are. And you've got to stop telling yourself the story of your past. You are giving your past power over you. I am this way because of what that person did to me. I'm not saying that wasn't significant. There are people in this room who have been transgressed against in gross and immoral and painful ways. But you cannot let that story define you anymore. You are not in that abusive home anymore. You are in Christ. You are not on the streets anymore. You are in Christ. You're not in that anymore. Reckon yourselves dead to sin. Jesus, I thank you for today. I thank you for your mercy. I thank you for your love. We so badly need, Lord Jesus, to learn how to walk with you. Help us, God. Help us, Jesus, to root down in your body and walk with you on the good days, the sunny days, and the rainy days. And, Lord, I know that as we do that, we will look back over our shoulder one day and see years, a story beginning to unfold A story of healing and joy. A story with lots of mistakes. A story with lots of brokenness. But a story of a person who is becoming more and more and more like Jesus. Heal us, God. Deliver us in your name.